In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> Although the season of Ab- Advent is conspicuous for the absence of Jesus himself, as we create a sense of waiting for his coming, the Sundays of Advent still uh, are richly layered in terms of the lectionary, the readings, in terms of the liturgy, the things that we do here, which we gathered over time and in which invest greater and greater meaning, in terms of the things that you may be doing at home to accompany this season. If you are one who has taken to heart the tradition of the O's of Advent, those antiphons on the Magnificat, and we have sung the Magnificat this morning, in honor of Mary, who is also very important in today's service, even though today's service is dedicated to John the Baptist, who we heard all about last Sunday. So I'm going to say a little more about Mary this Sunday. You'll see her next week and then after. The antiphons add an element of richness to the days as we count down to Christmas Eve, Christmas night, technically. This one, the first is in Latin, and there's a bit of Latin in these days as well. O sapientia, it reads, O wisdom, which came forth from out of the mouth of the Most High and reaches from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things. Come and teach us the way. We're calling for God's voice to speak to us. Help us to live. Wisdom is the great side of experience if you like, that coming together of knowing and doing in which we do what we do because we know it's what we are to do. Wisdom in experience meets today Mary in her innocence. Innocence is the gray side of ignorance, if you like, not knowing what to do and doing it anyway. But Mary knows exactly what she is to do and does it. Her innocence covers her lack of worldly wisdom, which in this reading, in this season, and in this whole way of walking with Jesus is seen as a huge plus. There's little room in our scriptures for worldly wisdom. It's seen as a way of building hedges and building, as Chaplain Blackman said earlier today, a fortress against God. And that's something that we don't want to do. Mary, of course, knows what to do and does it. Another nuance of the relationship between knowing and doing, John, on the other hand, who's also on the scene, comes like a prophet to walk before Jesus, to tell us he's not Jesus, but he's the one who is going to announce Jesus coming on the scene at the beginning of his ministry. God's word embodied in a whole other way. John never seems to know whether he's done what he was asked to do, however, to the end of his life in prison as he awaits execution. He's still asking, is Jesus the one I was supposed to announce or was he someone else? He never knows. It's very poignant. Mary, of course, knows. The one who has come is the one foretold in the promise, God himself. 
Yahweh returning to his temple, God himself coming once more to dwell with human beings. The lifting of the curse that fell with the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, the restoration of the kingdom of God to this earth. So rejoice, rejoice. And that's our other piece of Latin. This is also known as Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete for rejoice. The rose candle in the Advent wreath, which we light today, symbolizes not Mary and not John the Baptist. It symbolizes the piece of text which we read today. And you would know it if you do your daily Bible reading in Latin from the Vulgate, and probably I know many of you do. <laughs> And how did that section go? Semper gaudete, always rejoice. Sine intermissione orate, pray without ceasing. In omnibus, in everything, in omnibus, gratias agite, in all things give thanks. First Thessalonians 5, we've heard it. Gaudete, rejoice, semper gaudete. Always rejoice, when always, semper. The Greek is pantote, which means always, but not in every way, always, but all the time, which means under what conditions? Under all and any conditions whatsoever. Whatever the heck is happening to you in your life, inside or outside, you are to rejoice. It's not a matter of circumstances. Pray without ceasing continually, incessantly, all the time. In all things give thanks, and ponte in everything. Eucharistite, our word Eucharist, make the Eucharist, give thanks in all circumstances. I labor this point because it is probably not our practice to pray all the time, I wish it were mine let alone tune that prayer to rejoicing or to giving thanks. Most of my prayers are asking for something, and that's probably how most of us think about prayer. A little suggestion that we might look at that from time to time. Paul, in fact, is relentless here. There's no escape. At all times and in all things without ceasing, whatever the circumstances, don't ask God to fuss with your circumstances. Ask God to give you a thankful heart for whatever the heck he's given you. That's prayer. That's faith. Even especially in the parts of our lives when we're not particularly happy with what God has given us. We're to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. That means not when things are going our own way, by the way. Joy, prayer, praise, and thanksgiving are not dependent upon having anything to give thanks for or having any reason to rejoice. Now I can let the text do its work here. You've been commanded and you obey. Rejoice, rejoice, everybody rejoicing. <laughs> no, it doesn't work, does it? It's like when God says, love everybody, command. Does your heart follow? No, of course not, and God knows it. You can't command anything. But you can ask for prayer or thanksgiving. Now, fortunately, I live in a world outside in which Rejoicing is commanded at every turn that I make. I live in a world in which every transaction, from the cafe to the gas pump, is accompanied by a cheery kairete, rejoice, which translates, have a nice day. No, have a great day. No, have a truly awesome day. I live in a world which is manic, 
in its desire to promulgate happiness by requiring rejoicing in all who serve, expressed at least from the nose down to the bottom of the chin like this. <laughs> you see lots of teeth, but the smile never goes to the eyes. There, the manic changes to panic, doubtless because of the awaited consumer satisfaction questionnaire, at which you're always told anything below 10 means I'm in trouble. Of course, do what you want. <laughs> Thank you. You've given me a lovely day. The gleam of polished white fangs belies the fear in the eyes, and fear runs our world. The panic that says, I am the prey, not the predator in this fast food chain. Thank you very much. Does God seek then by his divine fiat to predicate his kingdom, his rejoicing upon the same gratuitous glee? Is this an exercise in power? I told you, rejoice, you will rejoice. Think of the alternative, that's better. No, God I say, no, we could do well as a church if I kept with this program, let me assure you. No, God predicates his joy in his heart for our hearts on gratuitous grace. A grace that comes when God has got us to the place where we can begin to get rid of everything that brings us joy in our flesh except him, and that's everything except him and what he has in mind for us when we can open our hands and our hearts and receive it. Isaiah speaks of the sprouts shooting up in the wilderness. But to have the sprouts of new life shoot up, you need a wilderness. Our problem is we live in a jungle in which so many of our desires are racked up waiting to be satisfied that nothing that God plants has a chance of growing. Chesterton writes, and I quote, when a person has found something that they prefer to life itself, they for the first time have begun to live. When a person has found something that they prefer to life itself, they for the first time have begun to live. Chesterton is saying in all the stuff with which we have surrounded ourselves to keep ourselves happy in this world, how much of it is really making us happy? How much of it is making us anxious? How much of it would we be better without? How much joy might there be beyond all our health and wealth and well-being in this life? For most of us, the place of eternal bliss over the horizon, pure joy, is basically what we've enjoyed now, writ large. Everything we've come to know on this planet, in this life, in the flesh, in this earth, and then some. We want what we know on the other side. Same old, same old. In fact, whatever might threaten that, whatever might be novel or unexpected in God's gift to us, is the last thing we want. Neri says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, period. He has looked with favor on his lowly servant. I have nothing, I am nothing, I deserve nothing. 
He has scattered the proud. They're gone. They're out of here. He has cast down the mighty. He has filled the hungry, but sent the rich with all their millions and billions away. Who's happy now? Now, you can think the logic through a little too strictly. It says if you had something that made you happy, it wasn't for long, let alone forever. And if you didn't, now you did, except it won't be for long because God will take it away anyway, all over and over and over and over and over, so that you can be poor and hungry and lowly over and over again and again, which is exactly where God is going a poverty of spirit, an inner desert experience where what he plants will grow. When a person has found something that they prefer to life itself, they for the first time, for the first time, have begun to live. How easy is it to get through this life? Whether you're in the church or out of it, it makes no difference at all without ever having begun to live the way that Jesus will talk about when he comes to fill in this story. Now the way to stop this cycle of infinitely delayed gratification is to transcend it, to get beyond the circumstances which so hedge us, hem us in, which delimitate and condition our notion of what happiness is, and with which we are so bound up, that is the word, bound, and yet bound and determined to keep trying to get more and more of what does less and less to give us joy. Why on earth would anyone have a billion dollars? Why would they have multi-billion dollars? Because they're not happy, and they're hoping that the next billion will give them some joy. We have a few years to enjoy what that feels like. God help us. How can I find true happiness in a false world is the question. Mary knows you turn that false world upside down. You shake everything out of its pockets, then you set it down again and say, now start again, God's way. How can I find true happiness living a false existence? You can't. And the answer is find something more important, something or someone more important than life itself, something or someone for which you would give up your life. That's called love. Love of one another, love of God. And then step up, step out, move on, from what is known and familiar in your life and into the unknown. Because if you are truly loving and your happiness depends entirely on the happiness of someone else, everything solid in your life has begun to dissolve. You know what it is to surrender. You know what it is to lose your independence. You know what it is to be entirely dependent on something out of your control. You're right where God wants us. To make your way into this, you need faith. Faith in which the relationship between doing and knowing, wisdom, go right out the window. 
You're asked to do. There are no guarantees, and you do it. Then on the other side, you find what it was you were to know. You're asked to go on a path you don't want to go on, to a place you have no desire to go, only to arrive there and find it a place from which you never want to return, a place you never want to leave. God's best for us is so much better than our, better, our best for ourselves, and it's also so much different. Thank goodness that he persists. He persists in guiding us between chaos and rigidity, guiding us away from our fear of the unknown, which either makes us freeze or makes us panic, giving us the sense to sense that when we pass into that unknown realm in which his love for us and our love for one another becomes really real, we begin to sense the shape of that land. We're not trapped with fear. We're not trapped with anything. We are free to enjoy his love. But it requires us to accept the promise to do what Abraham did. We heard of Abraham in the Magnificat. And he gave up everything he had to go where God asked him to go. I sometimes write little prayers for people. I usually warn them I'm doing it. I do it in the early hours of the morning. They're prayers which are addressed to God, but they're intercessions that I'm doing on their behalf, I pray. And I warn them I'll send them the prayer. It will just have a number. They can delete it if they wish. I don't have to send it. They respond with great grace. I'll share you this prayer, and then I'm done. I'll blank out the name. It's no one anyone knows. Let's pray. Prayer for blank. Father, I pray for your child, blank. Not just my friend or my sister or whatever she is to me, but what she is to you, who know her best, who knew her from before this world was birthed in fire and ash and cloud. You know what she is, and you know what she might be, pure possibility. Let her not be the prisoner of what she is. Let what she will be not be simply more of what she has become for good or ill, and the good is glorious. Let her being and her becoming come from you and her together. Pure possibility, like a child, your child. Amen.